Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Thanks be to God for his holy word. It is a clear teaching in scripture That our God is great and awesome. He is God Almighty. And He is all-powerful. But as creatures, we lack the true understanding of how great, powerful, and awesome He truly is. It is too much for our minds to grasp. You see, the words we use do not fully describe his greatness or his awesomeness because he cannot be measured. He is infinitely greater, more powerful and awesome than we could ever describe or think of. He is immeasurable. Now, just think of that for just one moment if you can. He is immeasurable. But now think... How it is this God who loves his people with an immeasurable and everlasting love. A love that we have never experienced in our entire lives. A love that no one else can show us. Not our parents or our grandparents or friends. And Jesus being the embodiment of God's love. Loves sinners. He loves all types of sinners. And Jesus loved this one particular sinner who approached him with a burden. It was a burden that 
bore a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And where he may have failed is how he approached Jesus and said, a Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, Jesus responded, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he went on to tell him, Well, what you can do is keep the commandments. And he gave him the last six commandments of the ten commandments of the moral law. And he said, yes, I have kept all these all my life. I'm a, good, I'm a good guy. I'm righteous. I have kept these. But Jesus looked at him. He loved him and he showed him compassion. And he responded, well, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have. And the money you receive from those proceeds, give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come. Follow me. You see, that burden he was carrying was not lifted that day as he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He loved his possessions more than God. He had uh, idols that he was worshiping, and he could not let go of. And he rejected the God who can give him eternal life. He, he rejected Jesus that day. And he didn't come to know God's immeasurable love. Have you ever met someone like that? Who is burdened with whether it's life's troubles? Who can never go to Jesus to lift that burden. They, they try to carry that burden on their own. They act like they're strong and they, that they can do it themselves. Not realizing that maybe that burden is found in their sin, in their own idols, in their pride. And they just cannot come to Jesus. But Jesus has a promise. He has promised to lift every burden from us. Listen to his promise. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is not only the Savior, who is a man who has taken our burdens to the cross, but he is also God Almighty who is able to lift our burdens completely, including our sins. You see, this man turned away sorrowful because there is an expectation that in following Jesus, he would have had to leave all his burdens and all of his idols behind. This is what is expected of all of us. Yes, we come to him by faith alone, But repentance is on the other side of that coin, you see. Our idols and Jesus cannot mix. The things or objects we love most in this world cannot have the same place as Jesus. This is why this man walked away in sorrow, because he just couldn't let go of his possessions. His idols and his false gods is what he cherished the most. And now now think of the disciples. They are listening to what is going on here. 
Because this was indeed a lesson for them as well, uh, and a lesson for us. This is what he had been trying to teach them all this time. They are to pick up the cross, to not only be ready to die for Jesus, but also to nail themselves to that cross. They are to put to death the evil deeds of the body that is to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. That is the call of every Christian. Uh, But that is not how we often promote Christianity, is it? We often think of Christianity as something positive and uplifting, but we normally do not think of being a Christian as one who is called to be crucified. Now, that is just a metaphor to explain that we are to live in the world, but not of the world. We are not to be controlled by the passions of the world, but we are united to our Savior, and we are to live under His power and control. Now, this is a high calling, isn't it? Many of us ask ourselves, how are we able to ever do this? Well, we're not able. Not in ourselves. And this is where Jesus is going with this conversation. He tells them how one is saved by telling them who saves them and what is in store for those who are saved. In other words, God saves his people and God cares for his people. Those are the two points I have for you this morning. So after exposing the rich man's idols, he walks away in sorrow because he wanted to keep his idols instead of believing in and following Jesus. Now Jesus looks around and turns his attention to his disciples and he says a hard saying. I know there's an exclamation point at the end of the sentence as if he was uh, preaching like a Baptist minister. Um, but, But there are no punctuations in the original language. And given the fact that he looked at him with compassion and loved him, I believe there is a tone of sadness in his words when he says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? See, this was not meant to be used as an opportunity for us to look down at those who have more than us and wag our fingers telling them to give their riches away as if that would solve the problem. But this was put here for us to do some self-examination. It was put here so that we would look at ourselves. So we need to ask the question, why did Jesus say this? Well, remember King Solomon, who asked for wisdom, but he was given wealth. What did he do with his wealth? He not only built the temple for God, but he also bought things that God forbid. His wealth opened doors of opportunity with other nations, and he took for himself many wives from those nations. And those wives brought their false gods with them, which he would later serve as well. See, those with wealth have many great advantages in society. Not only that, But they have more opportunity to be led astray from God. Uh, They have more access to the world and what the world has to offer. If you want something or you need something, if you're wealthy, you can just go out and buy it. 
while those without wealth may have to rely on God for their next meal. The rich and poor have different cares and different worries when it comes to what they need. And if you have wealth, there's an even greater danger. Uh, Since you have worked hard for what you have, you enjoy the fruits of your labors, and you enjoy a comfortable lifestyle, you can be led to believe that this is how it is always going to be, and that all you really need in life is money. So instead of going to God for what you need and thanking Him for all that you have, you rely on yourself and what you have done and your own wealth. See, your dependence shifts from God to something other than God. God is forgotten because wealth has become your God. That is the problem here. It is not only about being rich and having stuff, Because everyone has stuff. The problem is in asking the questions. Who is your God? Who governs you? And who will you follow? Who is your God? Who governs you? And who will you follow? So how did the disciples respond to this hard saying? It says they were amazed at his words. Why do you think they were amazed? Well, many Jews still believed in that time that if you had wealth, it means you are blessed by God and that you are actually in God's favor. If anyone is to enter the kingdom of God, it would be the rich. They have all the resources they need to serve God and to seek God. But that is not human nature, is it? If we were given all the resources and the money in the world, would we seek God? No, no one seeks God. In fact, this rich man who approached Jesus wasn't seeking God. There's no such thing as God seekers. He was seeking the only thing he was missing. He owned everything else. But he could not and did not own eternal life. He had no control over it. And he wanted the gift, but not the giver. What he was really missing was God, and he walked away from him. He walked away from the only one who could grant him eternal life. If only he asked. But at their amazement, Jesus repeats himself and adds a saying. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is quite a funny image uh, when you think about it. But what is he trying to say here? What is he implying? He, He is not just saying that it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but he is saying it is impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. From all the camels I've met in in this world, and from all the needles I've seen my wife uh, use for knitting, I'm not big into knitting, but it seems to me that it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, if you have any objections, we could talk about that later. But the disciples picked up on this. 
And it says they were exceedingly astonished. Why? They were shocked at the statement, more shocked than the first statement. Why was that? Well, I believe they were a bit convicted at this point. Remember, one of them was a a tax collector who had some wealth. And some of them were fishermen. And uh, being a fisherman, now you weren't exceedingly wealthy, but they weren't of the lower class either. It was a blue-collar job. They had some wealth. Uh, Peter owned a boat. Uh, He and his brother owned a house together. Uh, They had a simple yet stable lifestyle. They weren't going hungry, in other words. They, too, had possessions. Because when you think of the issue of wealth, wealth can be relative. Wealth can be relative. Most of us here, compared to the billionaires of the world, we would be considered poor. But if you compare us to any person from a third world country, we would be considered wealthy. See, the disciples came under this conviction and said to him, then who can be saved? Uh, They were, in other words, they were saying, who will be granted eternal life based on their status or based on what they have done? Who will enter the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus was saying, based on anything else, no one. No one. It is impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God. We have possessions. Everyone has possessions that we hold to and love. That's why they were convicted. And they asked this question. Who can be saved? Well, when the rich man came to Jesus, Jesus brought to his mind two things that he must know to inherit eternal life. He told them that he must know God and know himself in light of God and his law. But when he came under the conviction that he had not kept the commandments of God, he walked away sadly. Had he only stuck around for what Jesus would say, is the third thing to know to inherit eternal life. The third thing to know is the grace of God and His power and ability to save. And he says this by first stating the obvious that he has been saying all along. Jesus answers their question, then who can be saved by saying, with man it is impossible. With man, it is impossible. This is one of the first truths we learn from the scripture that most people do not seem to want to believe is that man cannot save himself. There is no choice you can make, prayer card to fill out, or aisle to walk down that will save you. And no one should expect to be saved because he or she is a good person. No one is good except God alone. In his own way, this is what Jesus told the rich man. There is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It is impossible for man to save himself, rich or poor. Every other religion in the world is built on man saving himself by following a list of chores. 
Checking off the boxes. But here Jesus says it is impossible. We are all condemned if we are left to our own devices. But the good news is, and the second great truth that we find in the scriptures, is that with man, salvation is impossible, but not with God. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. God is the one who saves. God takes the initiative and scripture is our witness. Uh, Jonah says this right before the fish vomits him out onto dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jesus even speaks of his mission as the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. God saves. We cannot save ourselves. What is impossible for man is possible with God. This is how we ought to think of our own salvation. It's not based on the choices we have made. It is based on what God has done in our lives and in our hearts. And also this is how we ought to think when we think of others whom we assume are without God and will never come to God. You see the disciples had an issue with control. Uh, that may have come from pride. Remember, uh, they were prideful followers who wanted to stop the man who was casting out demons in his name. And they wanted to stop the children from coming to Jesus. They were anxiously trying to control who was coming to Jesus. And anxiously trying to control the results. It, it reminds me of uh, during the revivals. Uh, whichever one you want to choose. To me they're all pretty much the same. Where people were anxious. Where is the Spirit? Is the Spirit working here? Is the Spirit working there? Is the Spirit working? What did Jesus say? You won't know where the Spirit is working. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When one is saved, salvation manifests itself in a couple of ways. One believes in Jesus, then one lives accordingly. One believes in Jesus, and then one lives accordingly. But you see, the disciples weren't thinking as shepherds and servants who rely on their master to do his work. But they were thinking more like secret service agents for Jesus. But in their minds, they thought they were being faithful. Instead of simply letting God work in in others' lives. I had a professor who explained what it means for church leaders uh, to shepherd and, and basically we are to open and close large barn doors and let the sheep go in and out to feed. Now yes, we uh, look out for wolves and wolves in sheep clothing and, and the weapon we use is the word of God. But we're not here to control the work of the spirit and others. We're not here to control salvation. No one can control salvation. It is too much for mere men To control. After I preach, I let the Spirit work. I back off. I don't want to get in the way. Because we serve a great and awesome and all-powerful, all-gracious and all-loving God. This is the way we ought to think when it comes to our children, our close family or friends who are without God. We shouldn't think, oh, I know him. He he can never be saved. He's stubborn. 
He's too hard-hearted. It is impossible for him to be saved. Yes, it is impossible for you to save him. Especially if you're relying on yourself or your own methods. But for God, all things are possible. Especially through the means that he has provided. Word, sacrament, and prayer. See, the rich man was seeking eternal life rather than seeking God who grants eternal life. God is the goal of our salvation as we are going to him. And he is the source of our salvation as he grants us eternal life. Now I believe, uh, as the evidence shows throughout this gospel, that the rich man in this text was actually Mark, the, the writer of this gospel. If that is so, then that means he walked off that day sorrowful, only to be brought back later. He would have repented of his idols and returned to Jesus and joined the disciples. And this would fulfill what Jesus says here. It is impossible for this rich man to save himself. Yes, he walked off. But God would work on him and he will be back. Jesus knows what he is doing while we remain oftentimes clueless. Clueless. So the question is, is he worthy to be trusted? Can we trust him to save? We're not to be naive, but we're also not to lose hope. I understand it is so easy to lose hope in our world today. But we have an all-powerful Savior who is the ultimate and only hope of the world. Now in Peter's nervousness, he wanted to be sure Uh, That he was going in the right direction. He he was in the middle of nervous self-examination. He wanted to make sure he wasn't self-deceived like the rich man. He, He was seeking some comfort from his Lord. That God is indeed saving him and the other disciples. Peter began to say to him. See we have left everything and followed you. They knew they had possessions. And they knew it was not only the rich that would be found guilty. And Jesus' response almost sounds like he is saying uh, that his disciples are saved by what they do or or, uh, what they left behind. But that is not the case. We must consider the entire context of how the disciples began following Jesus. Jesus called them first to follow him. And the fact that they left everything to follow him is just evidence that God has been working in their lives. Uh, Of course, except one, that is Judas Iscariot. He gives us the new hearts to abandon our idols to follow him. At this point, though the disciples were still dull in their understanding, they were still following Jesus. To put it theologically, they were converted. I don't believe the, uh, the belief that they were converted later at Pentecost. They were already converted. They cast themselves on the mercy and grace of God to save them as they left everything to follow him. And we must not ignore the fact that there are rewards for following him. Get this. God is the one who saves. God gives us faith to believe in him. God prepares the good works we are to do by following Jesus. Then God gives us rewards for following him. 
knowing that it was God who worked in us from beginning to end, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is like being accused in court of being a house burglar, knowing that you are guilty of the crime, and the judge lets you go scot-free because of your adequate and all-powerful advocate who intervened on your behalf. And on top of that, he gives you a brand new home, fully furnished, with a lifetime supply of food and clothing, guaranteed. And we're not just speaking about having the final reward of eternal life. In case you were thinking that Christianity is all about losing and suffering, and only about this pie in the sky reserved for when I die, if you think that Christianity has no benefits for this life at all, Jesus says otherwise. See, the Christian life is not just about losing, but it is also about gaining in this life. Jesus gives us here the good, the bad, and the ultimate promises of following him. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Notice, he is not just talking about any old humanitarian cause. He is talking about devotion to himself and the gospel. Uh, Because at the same time, he is not saying that we are to abandon our responsibilities to our families. Uh, This would contradict what Paul uh, calls on fathers to love their wives and care for their children. We're not called to abandon our families for Christ. Remember that the disciples were uh, the first missionaries of this gospel at the beginning stages of the church. And they had to leave all that was theirs behind to follow Jesus for the moment. It wasn't permanent. They they could eventually go back. They left for ministry purposes. This doesn't mean they abandoned their families and their responsibilities to them. Rather, he is speaking of devotion. He is speaking of devotion as it is applied to us today. Our families as well as our possessions could get in the way of being devoted to Jesus. They all can become idols that we worship and That we put before Jesus. So he stresses the importance of having him as our God and our master. Therefore, we are also to be devoted to his gospel. He says there is no one who leaves everything and everyone for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. That is now in this world. In this age. Not just in heaven. They will receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. When you hear that, you can almost hear the prosperity preacher saying, Amen. That's exactly why I say Amen. That's the proper way to say it. But anyway. But he is not saying that we will become rich if we leave our possessions for his sake. Or just to acquire more. Right? But he is saying that Christians will be taken care of in some form. God is the one who saves and God cares for his people. How? Well, to summarize it, by providing the church. 
He provides the church. He is saying that the gospel is going out into the world and there will be churches established. And as generations pass, these churches will be a new family for those who had to leave their families behind. You see, as a Presbyterian minister, I'm blessed to see whole families of believers and generations of believers come through and and I'm able to baptize young ones and hopefully I get to see them grow and to profess their faith when they're older. But at the same time, we don't want to ignore those who were rejected by their families because of their faith in Jesus. Because the church becomes their new family. We are the ones they are to go to when they are in need because there is nowhere else to turn. The church becomes the family of God for God's people. And this is the means that God uses to care for his people. This is why I'm always astonished. And ask the question, how can Christians ever neglect the gathering of the saints? How can we ever take for granted what God has provided to care for us, to nurture us? Never mind in the last couple of years where people have found every excuse not to gather with the saints. That should never be. Because Jesus also mentions the bad promises, right? There will be time, a time when we will be persecuted in some form or another. There will be persecutions coming our way. And we're going to need a church family to be there when persecutions come our way. And they do come. And they will come. And thirdly, for those who follow Jesus, there is the ultimate promise of eternal life in the age to come. Because this world is not all that that there is. So this is a mixed promise. You have uh, the good promise, the bad promise, and the greatest promise. There is the promise of a covenant family, the promise of persecution, and the promise of eternal life. And those who follow Jesus will be viewed as last in the world. We are viewed as worthless because the riches of the world cannot satisfy the longing we have for God. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is called the great reversal of all things when justice will be served and what appears to be will no longer be. The rich will become poor and the poor will become rich. Those with great possessions will be gone And all that is left to ask is what have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? And Jesus will say to his disciples, come, you who are blessed by my Father, you who have been saved by God, in other words. You who have been saved because it is impossible for you to save yourself. You who have been blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom of God, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God saves us, and God cares for us. Jesus just taught the way to eternal life is by God's hand alone. God prepared the way of salvation through Jesus. 
as he will ultimately die on the cross for sinners and be raised on the third day to grant us eternal life. This proves that God is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can transform these hearts of stone to hearts of flesh in order to follow him. For he is the almighty, all-powerful creator of our hearts. Now the question for you is, can you trust him to save? And are you willing to give up what you have, set aside your idols to follow Jesus? There is a great promise of both reward in this life and in the next. What greater blessing is there than to be with God and to be with his people for eternity? Amen. Let us pray.